wish I was someone else. I'm worthless. I hate my life. No one understands me. I feel so guilty. Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. We are continuing on in our series leading up to Easter. We've entitled it Jesus Saves. This year we're spending a message each week looking at different types of people that Jesus came to save. That little bumper can tell you people have all kinds of needs and all kinds of hurts. And it was the same way when Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. There were all kinds of people standing around that cross. There were all kinds of people who'd interacted with Jesus the day before. And uh, the day of, when he died, and then on Easter Sunday. And today, inside your bulletin, you find out the group of people we're talking about today. Religious people. One thing that will shock you, the first time you read the Bible, you get to the part about the crucifixion, the people who want Jesus dead, you'd think it would be organized crime figures, because Jesus would be speaking about truth and doing what's right. No, it wasn't organized crime figures at all. It wasn't some underworld syndicate or something like this. It was religious people. Priests. And Pharisees, and the Pharisees are what we would call Bible experts. They were Old Testament Bible experts. And they wanted Jesus dead. Why? Well, today we're going to talk about that, because when we do talk about that, you'll see how Jesus came to free us from a lot of wrong thinking when it comes to religion. Um, If you look at the top of that bulletin, Paul wrote to Timothy this verse. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Would you say that much, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Would you say that with me out loud, please? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul added, and I'm the worst of them all. Paul was the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul was a religious scholar, a deeply religious person. Yet because he put his faith in religion and not a right relationship with God, he said, I was going the wrong way. Jesus came to save people like Paul, people who trusted in their own righteousness and not in him. So I want to talk with you about that today. There's good news here. Jesus came to save sinners, even religious folks who think they can get to heaven on their own. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I just pray that today you'll speak and move me out of the way, and you'll teach us something we need to hear about a right relationship with you. You came to save sinners. I thank you that you saved Paul. You save a lot of people, Lord. Anybody will come to you. And so, Lord, today I pray that um, you'll make clear what you want to say to us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Point one, Jesus came into the world to save sinners like the religious leaders. These people who are yelling, uh, working up a crowd, asking uh, for the Roman governor Pilate to crucify Jesus. And point A is the religious leaders needed saving. I'm going to give you four reasons why they needed saving. Religious leaders needed saving because they valued popularity and position more than following God. I mean, see, this can happen when you get into a religious system. You get into the religious system not to tell people about a right relationship with Christ, but to be somebody of significance, to be recognized, to be popular. That's what was happening in the days of Jesus. There were many people, because in those days, remember the Uh, chief priests and the Pharisees, these people, they were experts in the Bible. A lot of people were illiterate. They didn't even have any idea what the scriptures said. But these people not only could read it, they could interpret it. And they loved being referred to as professor or as rabbi, as teacher. 
And they always had the special positions of honor at every banquet. And they were, they were a big deal. When you walked in, you're like, woo, somebody important's come. And then along comes Jesus. And when people hear Jesus talk, he doesn't talk like these guys. He doesn't act like he's got it all together. He talks with power and authority as if he knows God personally. And he tells them how to love others and not be a big deal out of themselves. And people were drawn to that like flies to honey. John 11, you'll see how this is turning out. Jesus is about to do an amazing miracle. We're jumping in here, by the way. Um, A friend of his, Lazarus, has died. He's been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus raises him from the dead. Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, and his hands and feet were bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. And many believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Well, I guess so. I mean, he made a dead man come back to life. Who does that if you're not God in the flesh? And sometimes people even say to me, you know, if I just saw a miracle, then I'd believe. Well, that's no guarantee. Look what happened here. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. And then the Roman army will come, destroy both our temple and our nation. Now Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that time, said, Ah, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest at that time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. I mean, the high priest said, don't you understand? we got to get rid of this guy. I mean, they were worried. They had the positions of authority. The Romans were occupying Israel at that time, the land of Israel at that time. They were subject to Rome, and they'd worked out a status quo where Rome dealt with them. They gave a few concessions, but not too much, and they had this uneasy truce that was going on. And here comes Jesus, and Jesus is going to destabilize the whole thing. He goes around telling them, hey, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry a pack one mile, which he could, carry it too. Show them what love looks like. If he slaps you on one cheek, turn the other one. And these Pharisees, these people of stature, were going, what kind of teaching is that? How are we ever going to get our independence? And all these people are following him. Hey, we got to get rid of him. So the high priest goes, don't you understand? we got to kill him. He didn't even realize that he was prophesying exactly what Jesus, why Jesus had come. He would be the one who would die to rescue all the people. Not just those people, but the children of God scattered around the world. That's including you and me. And if that's good news to you, would you say amen? Jesus came to save the religious people, but they didn't want to be saved. Note, Jesus came to die as the ransom for our souls, not to seek popularity or title. I mean, if Jesus came to seek popularity or title, he did it completely the wrong way. He could have landed in a giant spaceship with 10-foot-tall angels, set up his government and said, hey, here's where we're going to run things now. He could have done that. But that's not why he came. He came in the way he did, so we, we, we would accept him by faith and put our trust in him. 
In fact, his disciples one day were arguing who among them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And here's what Jesus said, Matthew 20. Now you know the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die, pay the ransom. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that wage for you, for me. That's why he came, not to be a big shot, but to be a sacrifice so you and I could go free. The penalty of our sins paid in full. If that's good news to you, would you say amen? I mean, this whole thing is good news, but the religious people didn't understand that. See, religion, I can be in religion. I'm not looking for a savior. I'm looking for position. I remember talking to a young fellow getting out of seminary a few years ago, and he just finished, and I congratulated him on getting through the studies and other things, and I said, what do you want to do? He goes, man, I want to pastor a big church. I want to get a big crowd together. I want to tell a lot of people about Jesus because, you know, then a lot of people get saved, and I'll be doing something significant for the Lord. And I told him, well, um, good luck with that. Because ministry is not what you think. We talked a little bit about some of these things. Ran into him a few years later. And asked him, how's ministry going? He goes, it wasn't what I thought. He said, the truth is, it's not about me at all, is it? I went, "Mm mm-mm. It's about him. Jesus said, if you understand this, I didn't come to be a big shot. I came to pay the ransom. I came to be the sacrificial lamb. If you're going to follow me, you want to be a big shot in heaven, be the best servant on earth. That's the way it works. And the religious types, they didn't understand that. They didn't buy into that. They went, no, 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 no. We want to be a big shot here. And, then, and that's why Jesus rubbed them the wrong way. Mm. Point B, so the religious needed saving because they wanted popularity and position instead of following God. They also needed saving because they valued appearances over doing the right thing. You need to know that the Pharisees and the scribes, the people who wanted uh, to practice their religion, loved to demonstrate to people how committed they were to the Word of God. They would, uh, in some of the Old Testament commandments, it says you should always keep the commands of God on your heart and on your mind. So what they did is they made some leather pouches in which they'd roll up little scrolls of Scripture. They'd write Scripture on them, roll them up and put in these little pouches and tie them on their forehead. So the Scripture would always be on their mind. <laughs> Literally. These are called phylacteries. They would also then take another one and tie it on their left arm so the Scriptures would always be right next to their heart. And the more religious you were, the bigger the pouch the more scriptures in it. So you'd walk around with like a fanny pack on your forehead, basically. Okay? Whoa! That is a godly man with the fanny pack on his forehead. They loved that! Now, it didn't matter if you obeyed any of it. It just mattered if you looked good. I mean, you understand. Whoa! Big! memory pouches. And Jesus said, why do you do this? And they hated it because he called them out. In fact, 
they couldn't wait to get rid of him, so they made a deal with one of his disciples, Judas, who would betray him in the dead of night where they could arrest him without causing a big civil disturbance because a lot of people followed Jesus. So they'd arrested him on early Good Friday morning and taken him away in the middle of the night and had this false trial where they condemned him to death and then took him to Pilate so he would be executed. Well, Judas later had a change of heart when he realized this was going to lead to Jesus' death. And that's where we're jumping in the story because it'll show you how much these guys counted on appearances. Very early in the morning, Good Friday morning, the leading priests and the elders met again to lay plans to putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And when Judas, one of Jesus' disciples who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver, that's how much they had paid him to betray Jesus, they took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I've sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. And then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. I mean, it's blood money. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it a cemetery for foreigners. That's why the field is still called the field of blood, purchased with blood money. So here's the scene. These guys are so jealous of Jesus, and they're so worried about him taking away their pride and position, their popularity, that they arranged to have him executed. They forced the Roman governor, Pilate, to have this guy crucified. The money they paid to Judas, Judas has a crisis of conscience and goes, this wasn't right. He comes back and throws the money in the temple. And they're worried now because how would it look if we took blood money and put it in the temple treasury? Never mind the fact that we paid the blood money. I mean, we're not worried about the actual murder. We're worried about how it would look if we deposited the money in the bank. What? I mean, this is, this is what can happen when you get caught up in pretenses. I can carry around the scripture tied to my forehead and disobey it in full view of everybody. I don't have to actually obey it. It's just in the box on my forehead. Hmm. Note, Jesus values authenticity and hates hypocrisy. And in the margin next to hypocrisy, if you write acting or pretending. That's what that word really means. A, the Greek word there, hypocritos, where we get hypocrisy from, is one who's an actor. And the actors in those days would carry those theater masks on a stick you know, in front of them. They'd have the happy mask or the sad mask, depending on where they were going. These were literally people who wore masks. And Jesus said, you Pharisees, you're wearing masks. You're pretending to be righteous and your hearts are filled with all kinds of corruption. This is what he told them to their face, Matthew 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, and you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead men's bones and all sorts of impurity. 
outwardly you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, to come to Christ doesn't mean to pretend you have no problems. To come to Christ means you say, God, I'm a sinner, and I know you came to save sinners. Save me! There's no hypocrisy to that. And Jesus hated it when these religious leaders were going around pretending they had no sin. And that's why he had to come to be the ransom, to pay the penalty for sin. Because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And we need saving. The good news is, that's why Jesus came. Can I get an amen on that? So the religious leaders were into hypocrisy. They were into appearances. They were into position. Point C, the religious leaders also needed saving because they valued keeping rules above everything else. They had more than 600 rules that were set up as kind of fences to keep them away from the orig- breaking the original Ten Commandments. I mean, Ten Commandments were important, but to make sure you didn't break those commandments, they had commandments to keep you from breaking the commandments, and then commandments to keep you from breaking the commandments that would keep you from the com- breaking the commandments, and then commandments times three. They ended up with like 600 laws. They memorized all of them. They organized them in various strategies and structures to make sure that they never even got close to doing anything that anybody might conceive as sinful. But the long and short of it was it made them into judgmental people because now it just became a game to see who could keep the rules better than the others. And if you kept more of the 600 rules than anybody else, you were the most righteous and therefore closest to God. I mean, you see how this works. An example, John 18, 28, that same Good Friday morning. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor, Pilate. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was a feast commanded by God that they observe every year when the angel of death had passed over their ancestors when they were headed out of Egypt. It was the final plague that God sent on Egypt, the angel of death that killed the firstborn in every house. The Passover commemorated that night because that was the night the angel of death passed over them when he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorframe. Well, there was a special meal and observance that God commanded them to observe, and you couldn't do that if you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go and have the meal. And there were clear things that you shouldn't do to become ceremonially unclean, But the Pharisees had added to this, and the Gentiles were people who didn't observe any of this stuff, and so they would have broken lots of the ceremonial laws. And so in order to make sure you didn't get anywhere near breaking a ceremonial law and then therefore being disqualified to eat this Passover meal with your family, you just never went inside the house of a Gentile. I mean, you just never did it. And so... They're bringing Jesus, an innocent man, to be crucified because they're so jealous of him. They want Pilate to do the dirty work for them. And so they knock on the door, and they tell him, hey, we got a guy we want you to crucify. Well, come in. We can't. we got a Passover tonight, and that would make us unclean. So you want me to murder an innocent man for you? Yep, but you won't come in. Yes. Jesus had also told them, you know what you guys do? You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. This is what religion can lead to. I'm really good at keeping rules. I don't smoke or cuss or chew or go out with girls who do. But do you love God? 
Oh, I haven't gotten around to that. Do you love others? And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said the most important rules are loving God and loving others. I mean, a few weeks before, a man had come up to him, or a few days before, actually, a man had come up to him testing Jesus. See, the Pharisees thought he was a country bumpkin. I mean, he'd come up from Galilee, didn't go to any of the right schools, and they thought Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. And when he t- said all these things, talking with authority and would do all these miracles, they wanted to expose him for what he was. It's just an, you know, an itinerant bumbler. And so they asked him a loaded question, which is the greatest commandment? And they all had their opinions, and this rabbi said this, and that rabbi said this, and, you know, and how important it was. And Jesus gave them the best answer anyone had ever heard. Matthew 22. An expert in the religious law tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment of the law of Moses? I mean, of the 600. And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. That's Deuteronomy 6.5, by the way. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbors yourself. That's Leviticus 19.18, by the way. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And it says that the teacher who had interviewed him said, well said. And said, from then on, nobody dared to ask him any more questions. He said, you can summarize all the commandments if you will just love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. Well, why would that satisfy all the commandments? Well, think about it. If I love you, the commandment to not steal... Why would I steal your stuff? If I love you, I'll give you my stuff. If I love you, why would I have an adulterous affair with your wife? I'll help protect your marriage and help you guys go to counseling if there's problems in the marriage. I'm not going to steal your wife. Not if I love you. And why would I lie? Why would I present a falsehood? I love you. I'll tell you the truth, even if it hurts. And I'll keep my promise, even if it hurts, if I love you. Hmm. Well said. And now all those arguments for for status and position, who had the best argument of arranging the 600 laws, it seems foolish. And they knew it. And they wanted him dead. Galatians 5, 6, Paul said, We place our faith in Christ Jesus. There's no benefit in being circumcised or being uncircumcised. What's important is faith expressing itself in love. And if you'd underline faith expressing itself in love, that's what Jesus wants. Not rules. Faith expressing itself in love. Paul was writing in Galatians about exactly this. A fourth reason that the religious people needed saving, religious leaders needed saving, because they thought they could trust in their own righteousness. Again, they were the rule, they had invented the rules, they were the keepers of the rules, and so they were better than you and me who didn't keep the rules. I mean, if I got more scriptures in my memory pouch than you do, I win. If I can demonstrate that I've got a better handle on the whole hierarchy of all the rules, I win. And I'm closer to God. And that's why it's shocking to find them. I mean, this is the same guy who'd who'd raised Lazarus from the dead. 
This is the same guy where lame people could walk and blind people could see. And he explained the scripture so well that even their own experts were just intimidated. They go, ooh, man, what a great answer. And yet when he was crucified, listen to this in Matthew 27. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. He saved others. They scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now. We'll believe in him. Trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And you can imagine when they're mocking, they're turning around addressing the crowd. He said he was the son of God. Remember, he was a better teacher than we all are. We'll come down off the cross, teacher. And they didn't even realize that he was the one fulfilling all the prophecies that they would have had memorized and stuck in their memory pouch about how a Messiah would come to save them, a suffering servant. All the sins of the world would be laid on him, and he had to die, and they never put it together because they weren't interested in a Savior. They were interested in being known for being important. There's a note here, Jesus' death on the cross is the only way any of us can be made righteous. That's the irony. He had to stay on the cross to save them, to pay the penalty, to pay the ransom. Paul, Romans 3, the guy who said he was chief among sinners, said no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. I mean, these same priests mocking Jesus were the ones offering sacrifices day after day after day after day. And there'd been prophecies in the days of Moses that someone would come that would offer a perfect sacrifice and it would end, but they didn't know when it would come. And even though Jesus said that that's why he came, they didn't believe him. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's why the sacrifices had to be offered again and again. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with God without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Wow. Would you read that sentence there, we're made right with God? Would you read that out loud with me, please? We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Wow. Hmm. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ and Christ Jesus, when he freed us from the penalty of all our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. He died for our sin. That's why it's so important to confess our sin. I don't need to pretend I'm righteous. I can come and say I'm a sinner. I sinned. And Jesus said, well, I'm so glad you came because I came to die for your sin. We don't have to pretend we don't have to walk around pretending we got it all made and compare ourselves to others. If I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, great news. Jesus came to die for us no matter who we are. Let's confess our sins to be today and be rid of it. And giving them to the only one who can pay the penalty for them. 
I mean, that's the good news of the cross. Why would you try to earn salvation on your own? Why would you pretend to make light of it? Just give it to Jesus. Paul again in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. Jesus didn't come down and save us because we were all doing what the Pharisees were doing. Those are the people he had the hardest com- harshest comments toward. Just come to me. Quit trying to pretend. Quit trying to try for position. He told his disciples, you're not getting this. I came to give my life away. And that's why it's so important for us to understand this. We don't come to Christ when we think we're good enough. We come to Christ precisely because we're not. Brandon Wildman's our student minister here. And I'm going to ask him if he'll come up for just a minute. Brandon and I were talking about this this week. And the big reason I want to have him come up here is that, uh, Brandon, in your life, I mean, some of this... When you hear Paul saying, this is a trustworthy saying, everyone should accept it, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them all, you and I are laughing about this. That's something we can both identify with, right? Absolutely. I I would say, you know, back in the day, I was giving Paul a pretty good run for his money (laughs) on the whole sin thing. Yeah, but tell everybody a little bit about your story. Well, I grew up probably most like most of you did. I grew up in a a great uh, Christian family. My mom played the organ uh, in every church we ever were part of, and so I was always part of music. Had to sing, had to play instruments um, in the children's plays. My dad was the deacon in the church, most of the time chairman of the deacons. That comes with its own pressures. Um, but yes, always there. Every time the doors were open, always a part of the children's ministry, student ministry, um, the church we attended when I was in high school. I served on the youth council uh, at that church, so I was part of helping organize and lead our ministry uh, from a teenager's perspective. So I had all kind of leadership opportunities given to me. But that didn't necessarily impact how you conduct yourself on Friday and Saturday nights, right? <laughs> no, not at all. It, it was the opposite on Friday and Saturday nights where I was leading student ministry on Sundays and Wednesdays. I was definitely leading a different kind of ministry, uh, if you kind of catch what I'm saying, on Friday and Saturday night with, uh, with my friends who I was really trying to impress, going for the popularity, going for uh, the, the laugh or the dare or whatever it was. I was the guy leading the charge for that lifestyle during the week. So in some ways, you can identify with the whole actor thing. You're pretending to be oh, something, right? John, I had, I had different masks I would wear constantly. And the funny thing was is the peer group that I was a part of, I wasn't fooling them at all. And I honestly think there were a lot of adults in my life that knew what was going on, but no one was coming and calling me out on anything. So when did it finally turn around? When did, when, did all, when did you realize, hey, this isn't right? Yeah, summer 1996. Um, youth Council helped lead, and we picked the camp we were going to, um, and I heard the gospel of freedom for the first time. I've heard about Jesus and salvation, but the gospel of freedom was what was spoke, and realizing in 1 Corinthians that he keeps no record of our wrong. And so there are no scales where God is, is, or tally marks where he's checking off on, well, Brandon messed up here, he messed up here, he messed up, oh, you did good on that one, but now you, you did more bad than good, and I'm holding that against you. I had to, to see in Scripture and truly believe in Jesus to be the perfection for me, to be the righteousness for me, to understand that, that when God looks at me, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Hmm. And not your own efforts. None of my efforts. Because they weren't any good anyway. They're horrible. <laughs> they still are horrible. <laughs> my you, own efforts. Do you tell high school kids this when you talk to them? Every, every opportunity I get, whether it's in a large group or, or just sitting one-on-one having coffee or, or, or burrito, any opportunity I have to tell teens about my life 
and my own sins and my own struggles, man, it really helps put, put us both on a level playing field. You know, it even goes farther. Not only when I sit with teenagers, but when I sit with teenagers' parents and we talk about their kids' sin, I want to say, well, let's talk about my sin. And then that brings up a conversation about their own sin or their own righteousness and going, look, God's not keeping records here. He, he, Jesus is our righteousness. He has given us everything. If we try to do more right than that, we're doing the same thing to the Pharisees. Let's, let's see how many commandments we can keep. And if I'm better than you, then I get in. If you're worse than me, you don't. And Jesus came to free us. He goes, this is hopeless. See, when you share this journey with kids, that's what gives the gospel its power. I meet people all the time. I can't tell people about Jesus because I'm not perfect yet in my life. God's working on you every day still, right? Every day. Every day I live in a, in a world of freedom because of the sin, because I don't have to stand a slave to that sin. It's, it's covered by Christ and Christ alone. I don't have to worry with any of the baggage. And the Holy Spirit's changing you. Daily, the Holy Spirit has changed me. Things I realized today uh, in my life that I didn't know years ago because the Holy Spirit is continuing to show me things every day. The more time I spend in God's Word, the more time I spend in prayer with Jesus, the more I want to be like Him. I mean, the gospel is better than we think. Yeah. Point two. Stick around because I want you to pray for us in a minute. Sure. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. You can put Brandon's name in there if you want. Please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is a gospel. Yeah. You can't even say Brandon. Woo! Okay. That's what they said at my 10-year class reunion. That guy's <laughs> praying for the first time ever, yes. Okay. Matthew five twenty, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talking to his disciples. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he talking about? Do I value popularity and position more than following what God wants me to do? Do I value appearances more than righteousness? Do I value keeping rules more than a relationship with Jesus or others? Do I think I'm righteous enough apart from Christ? Do I believe God accepts me based on my performance? Welcome to Pharisee 101. Jesus was asked, why does he, the disciples were asked, why does your boss, why does Jesus hang around with all these sinners? And Jesus answered their question. He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. If you know you're a sinner today, then you need to repent. You don't need to justify it and say, my sin doesn't matter. It's no big deal. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm better than so-and-so. And we do this all the time. Don't do that. Just say, I'm a sinner and I need grace. I come to Jesus for forgiveness. And he forgives them all, doesn't he? All my sins. Every one of them. He'll change me if I surrender. No pretense. No pretending. No acting. Straight up confession, forgiveness, restoration, joy, peace, eternal life. This is why we're doing this series, to remind us of this. Brandon, would you pray for us, please? Yes. Most gracious, loving Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word and the, and the revelation that is there that we can live a life of freedom through the gospel of your son, Jesus. God, I thank you for your, the life of Jesus, for his obedience on this earth to walk in a way that was completely righteous, that he could stand in the place of me and my sin and pay the penalty that I deserved in order to set me free 
through his life, his death, and the glorious resurrection. We pray by that power this morning that we would respond to you in freedom, that we could come to you no matter what the truth is in our lives, no matter what the the sin is holding us back, that we can gain freedom through Jesus. Would you do that work in us this morning, Father? We pray it in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now look.